There is something deeply compelling about darkness and horror. I've always been drawn toward things which disturb me, and my sense of humor tends in favor of dark comedy. Under the bleakest of conditions, people are known to trade in gallows humor. Perhaps it's in that spirit that guys like me are drawn toward the dark side of comedy. Perhaps it has the greatest power over those of us who face up to our existential predicament, who realize in the full light of consciousness that we are going to die. It's not that we aren't afraid. On the contrary, we're mad with fear, laughing to the point of tears in our hysteria. Today's story is a scary one. We will visit George Orwell's 1984, and in particular, we will take a look behind the door to room 101. Let's begin at the Ministry of Truth, a scene in which the protagonist Winston is being tortured and re-educated by a member of the Thought Police called O'Brien. Quote, O'Brien held up his left hand, its back toward Winston, with the thumb hidden and the four fingers extended. How many fingers am I holding up, Winston? Four. And if the party says that it is not four, but five, then how many? Four. The word ended in a gasp of pain. The needle of the dial shot up to fifty-five. The sweat had sprung out all over Winston's body. The air tore into his lungs and issued again in deep groans, which even by clenching his teeth he could not stop. O'Brien watched him. The four fingers still extended. He drew back the lever. This time the pain was only slightly eased. How many fingers, Winston? Four. The needle went up to sixty. How many fingers, Winston? Four, four, what else can I say? Four. The needle must have risen again, but he did not look at it. The heavy, stern face and the four fingers filled his vision. The fingers stood up before his eyes like pillars, enormous, blurry, and seeming to vibrate, but unmistakably four. How many fingers, Winston? Four. Stop it, stop it, how can you go on? Four, four. How many fingers, Winston? Five, five, five. No, Winston, that is no use. You are lying. You still think there are four. How many fingers, please? Four, five, four, anything you like, only stop it, stop the pain. Unquote. In the scene, this process continues for several pages. This is, of course, not an audiobook of 1984, so I have no intention of reading it all to you. That's good for you, because I'm definitely not the best narrator to listen to. I'll move us forward to a place later in the scene. Quote, O'Brien held up the fingers of his left hand with the thumb concealed. There are five fingers there. Do you see five fingers? Yes. And he did see them, for a fleeting second. Before the scenery of his mind changed, he saw five fingers and there was no deformity. Then everything was normal again, and the old fear, the hatred, and the bewilderment came crowding back again. But there had been a moment... He did not know how long, thirty seconds perhaps, of luminous certainty, when each new suggestion of O'Brien's had filled up a patch of emptiness and become absolute truth, and when two and two could have been three as easily as five, if that were what was needed. It had faded out before O'Brien had dropped his hand, but though he could not recapture it, he could remember it, as one remembers a vivid experience, as some remote period of one's life when one was in effect a different person." Unquote. By the way, a similar scene might be familiar to you. There was an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation in which Jean-Luc Picard was subjected to the same torture. He was shown four lights and demanded to see five, a clear homage to 1984 on the part of the writers. 
These fictional scenes effectively depict a hallucination which is induced by extreme coercion. The prospect of physical torture is terrifying in its own right, and these scenes are unpleasant, but there is something especially pernicious about mental torture. Suppose, for example, that you were wrongly accused of some terrible crime, something so odious that upon conviction results in you being despised by, so by society, even your own family and friends. You're the only person in the world who knows the truth of your own innocence. Think of Andy Dufresne in The Shawshank Redemption. He was convicted for murdering his wife and her lover based upon enough circumstantial evidence that it would be an astounding coincidence if he hadn't been the killer. In fact, Andy was innocent of the crime. But even the other inmates assume that he's guilty, even his friends. Early in the film, Red, played by Morgan Freeman, said this about Andy, quote, He had a quiet way about him, a walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. He strolled, like a man in a park without a care or a worry in the world, like he had on an invisible coat that would shield him from this place." Unquote. I think there is something to this. The invisible coat that Red refers to could be the knowledge Andy has of his own innocence. His spirit is not broken by the tragedy of his situation because his conscience is secure. You or I, put in that kind of circumstance, could at least hang on to that, a kind of freedom of mind or faith in the truth. Now, imagine that through some mechanism of psychological coercion, you'd been induced to believe in your own guilt. Suppose you're implanted with false memories, for example, such that you now know with the same conviction as you know anything that you have done this horrible crime with your own hands. Now you are truly broken. Not only are you the pariah of society, hated by everyone else, but you even hate yourself. Not only are you confined to prison, humiliated and oppressed by your captors and victimized by other prisoners, but you deserve it. You are consumed with shame and self-hatred. In 1984, the mechanism of coercion is purely psychological. Presumably, the altered perceptions that occurred to Winston and Picard might have been achieved through pharmacology, too. In his book Hallucinations, Oliver Sacks writes about altered states brought about by drugs. He writes, quote, The effects of cannabis, mescaline, LSD, and other hallucinogenic drugs have an immense range of variety, yet certain categories of perceptual distortion and hallucinatory experience may, to some extent, be regarded as typical of the brain's responses to such drugs. The experience of color is often heightened, sometimes to an unearthly level, as Weir Mitchell, Huxley, and Breslau all observed. There may be sudden changes in orientation and striking alterations of apparent size. There may be micropsia, or Lilliputian vision, or there may be gigantism, macropsia. There may be exaggerations or diminutions of depth and perspective, or exaggerations of stereo vision, or even stereo hallucinations, seeing three-dimensional depth and solidity in a flat picture. Unquote. He goes on, quote, The perceptual transformations and hallucinations induced by mescaline, LSD, and other hallucinogens are predominantly, but not exclusively, visual. There may be enhancements or distortions of, or hallucinations of taste and smell, touch and hearing, or there may be fusions of the senses, as sort of temporary synesthesia, the smell of low B-flat, the sound of green, as Breslau put it. Such coalescences or associations, and their presumed neural basis, are creations of the moment. In this way, they are quite different from true synesthesia, a congenital and often familial condition where there are fixed sensory equivalences that last a lifetime." Unquote. Drugs are molecules which act upon receptors in the body. 
Nothing new in kind can really be presented to the body in order to bring about a sensation, visual, emotional, painful, or otherwise. The capacity to see or feel something is already present in the brain structure. We have homeostatic levels of certain compounds in the body, say dopamine or serotonin being released at specific synapses. There are a variety of receptor types which bring about intracellular effects downstream of such compounds. Psychoactive drugs act upon these same receptors or otherwise implicate the same downstream effectors. Consider opioid drugs like heroin and morphine. These drugs induce feelings of pleasure by acting on opioid receptors in the brain. How do experiences in life, not mediated by drugs, come to feel pleasurable to us? The same way. Endogenous opioids act on those same receptors. Thus, pleasure is something which can occur because of structures and functions of the brain, and anything which affected those structures appropriately would result in pleasurable experiences. A direct electrical stimulus to the appropriate location in the brain would achieve the same result, as we have seen in rodent studies. Wire such a stimulator up to a button which the rat can press, and wouldn't you know it, they're happy to comply. Given the breadth of potential experiments you might be compelled to participate in as a laboratory animal, you'd be pretty damn lucky to have been selected for these ones. It should further be observed that appropriate stimulation of any area of the sensory brain will result in sensory experiences. You need not shine a light on the retina of the eye to produce the sensation of light in a subject. Direct brain stimulation will do fine, likewise for pain or anything else. Thus we see that psychological coercion could be extended to targeted pharmacological coercion, which could now be extended to neural device-mediated coercion. If we can make the iPhone, there is nothing preventing us from producing such technologies. Hell, they probably already exist. I remember a particularly frightening episode of Black Mirror. In the episode, a unit of soldiers is tasked with hunting down and eliminating mutant human beings. Each soldier is equipped with a futuristic implant, which augments reality to provide them with all kinds of useful data while they are in the field. Unknown to the soldiers themselves, as it turns out, they're being induced to see normal people, an ethnic minority that they're in the act of committing genocide against, as dangerous mutants. What struck me as terrifying about the episode was the understanding that such augmentation of perception is plausible. Clearly, genocide and persecution have occurred across our history and even occur today facilitated by all manner of dehumanizing propaganda and social engineering. I'm not doubting that. But you could imagine a man growing older and coming to feel regret and shame for what he participated in. He might come to awaken out of his cult mentality and see the truth objectively. But suppose a perpetrator of the worst atrocities could go to his grave with his head held high, a hero of his nation, the brave destroyer of zombies or terrorists or alien bugs, never knowing or being able to know the truth of his activities. Hell, his superiors with knowledge of the neural intervention could even take pride in protecting their troops from the ravages of post-traumatic stress disorder. After all, war is hell, and the job had to be done. Why make Private Jenkins suffer the immorality of it? All things being equal, there is less hardship and suffering this way. If, like me, this prospect turns your stomach, then you should see why I am suspicious of utilitarian ethics. I don't believe I have enjoyed occasion to talk about utilitarianism on the podcast before, what the hell? Let's take a digression. In the history of philosophy, A.C. Grayling writes about the work of Jeremy Bentham. Grayling writes, quote, Utilitarianism, whether of Bentham's or later more elaborate kinds, 
is a consequentialist theory of morality, understanding moral value in terms only of the outcome of actions, leaving aside any questions about the intentions of agents or the quality of their personal characters. Other theories of morality focus on these two latter, but the distinctive feature of utilitarian theories is that they measure moral value wholly by outcomes. Bentham and John Stuart Mill, who are jointly known as the classical utilitarians, though the latter made advances over Bentham's view, agreed in regarding happiness as the greatest good, and each person's happiness as being equal in value to anyone else's. This means that working to produce the greatest happiness for the greatest number is done impartially. Anyone's reason for promoting the good is the same as anyone else's reason for doing so." Unquote. Okay, fair enough. What does any of this have to do with 1984, or with infantry units outfitted with reality-augmenting implants? Well, let's consider these two examples, starting with the Black Mirror episode. There are two aspects to consider on moral grounds. The first is the genocide. Here is an ethnic minority which, for whatever reason the authorities believe, are inconvenient or antithetical to the greater good of the society. Strictly, according to Bentham's philosophy as I understand it, the genocide is justified and morally good so long as the resulting happiness in the society is higher than it would otherwise be. You might object that the passage I just read said that the greatest happiness for the greatest number must be established impartially. But that presupposes that it was bias or bigotry which motivated the authorities. They might have had a perfectly objective motivation. Indeed, an artificial intelligence possessed of no group bias might still prescribe the genocide on account of the algorithmic discovery that greater societal happiness would be secured by eliminating this minority. I'm not saying that Bentham or anyone else is prepared to defend atrocities. I'm saying that consequentialist philosophies fail on intuitive moral grounds. The second aspect is the augmented reality with which the soldiers are equipped. In this case, one could easily show that all other things equal, there would be greater happiness in the society if the perpetrators were unaware of their crimes. That seems undeniable, and yet it fails again on intuitive moral grounds. In the case of genocide, it is unjust to the victims. In the case of the augmented reality, it is untrue. A morality based in truth and justice is thus completely violated. So I contend that utilitarianism is immoral. In the case of 1984, the entire society is lied to at every level. The lies run so deep as to require the total denial of logic. Thus, 2 plus 2 equals 4 when it serves the party for it to do so, but it equals 5 when that is what serves the party. In fact, Winston would be much happier if he didn't notice this, if he just accepted and embraced the infallibility of Big Brother. I might be happier if I believed I were going to heaven, or Valhalla, or returning to Earth as a butterfly. Doesn't that justify a clinical psychologist or an agent of the government on utilitarian moral grounds to coerce me by any means necessary to hold such beliefs? Liberty, rights, knowledge, or anything else, according to this reading of utilitarianism, is only worth having if it results in greater happiness. It must have been a utilitarian mindset which allowed the Nazi leadership, trapped in a Berlin bunker, with the Soviets closing in, to murder their own children with cyanide before they shot themselves. After all, what future do these children have, and what misery they will experience when they learn the truth about their parents? It must have been a utilitarian mindset which caused the archbishop to cover the sex crimes of the priests. You wouldn't want such a scandal to weaken the greater good of Catholicism in the world. It must have been a utilitarian mindset that made it possible for a mother to drown her children in the bathtub, to protect them from a cruel and sinful future. At the root of utilitarian theory is collectivism. It doesn't matter what happens to person A so long as there's more happiness for person B and person C. 
This is the tyranny of the majority, the mob. Or perhaps even worse, tyranny of a few elites on behalf of the majority. Justice never enters into it. There can be no collective justice because the collective is not an agent, and it is not a conscious being. Justice is only concerned with the individual, and the ends for the collective cannot justify the means carried out against an individual. If you're very familiar with 1984, you might observe that I haven't actually mentioned Room 101 and the trial that occurs there. Returning to 1984, let's peek behind the door of Room 101 in which Winston is being tormented by his worst fear, rats. A cage of hungry rats has been positioned onto his face, and raving mad, he is being menaced with the threat that the divider will be lifted. At that point, the rats, it is promised, will devour his face. This time, it's been discovered that he still harbors love for Julia, with whom he had had an illegal affair and with whom he had been captured and brought to the Ministry of Truth. It was thus necessary for the Thought Police to destroy even his love for Julia. He must betray her, not just in words, but in thought. He must be made to disavow the last thing which is sacred to him. He must love only Big Brother, and then they will shoot him. Quote, the mask was closing on his face. The wire brushed his cheek. And then, no, it was not relief, only hope. A tiny fragment of hope, too late perhaps, too late. But he had suddenly understood that in the whole world there was just one person to whom he could transfer his punishment, one body that he could thrust between himself and the rats. And he was shouting frantically over and over, Do it to Julia! Do it to Julia! Not me! Julia! I don't care what you do to her! Tear her face off! Strip her to the bones! Not me! Julia! Not me! Unquote. Room 101 contains the worst fear of the prisoner being dragged there. By the standards of what could possibly use to alter a person's mind, it is primitive and barbaric. Given the advancement of neuroscience and computer technology in our time, such psychological means will become redundant. Fitted with an appropriate implant, a program might implement any stimulation upon the architecture of the brain to play any melody the programmer desires upon the landscape of consciousness. If we ever allowed something like Big Brother to seize authority in our time, he will be empowered far beyond Orwell's imagination. You will not simply be made to avow your love for Big Brother. You really will love Big Brother with all of your being.